0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Paco Lozano to the show. Paco is a professional television and stage actor based in New York City. Born in Puerto Rico to Cuban and Mexican parents, Paco grew up in Southern California before he moved to Milwaukee to attend Marquette University, which is where we met. He also has an MFA from the Osolo Conservatory at Florida State. His recent television appearances include Jessica Jones, Law & Order SVU, and God Friended Me. And among many New York theater credits, he's played on stage at the Delacorte alongside Meryl Streep. We're old friends. We've been to each other's weddings. We're dads, and I'm thrilled to have him here. Welcome to the show, Paco. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: so good to be here, man.
0: Oh, buddy, it's really great to be on the phone with you. I, one of the things I adore about this show is it is just an amazing excuse to sit down and have a deep, beautiful conversation with old friends. It's really great.
1: It's an honor. I, I know. I hope you know this I remember this. I, I look up to you for so many reasons, Nick. And I love our lifelong journey of well over 20 years now, being friends and knowing each other. I, I think it's very unique and special to me.
0: So oh, thanks, it's
1: an Pedro. honor to be on this show.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you, man. All right, let's jump in real quick and, and tell me about yeah. this show that you were supposed to do that sounded amazing before the pandemic hit. It's called Mobile Shakespeare at the Public. Well,
1: I mean, it's still going to happen if and when this pandemic is over. I will be performing in mobile shakes, as they call it, for the public. And yeah, it was Cymbeline.
0: Was oh, Cymbeline. wow, cool.
1: Yeah, it was. It was exciting. It still is exciting. This is next on their season. Whenever this thing is over, or it's safe to do theater in New York.
0: So, what is mobile Shakespeare? Does that? I mean, does that imply that the public produces it, but you actually go around other places performing it?
1: Oh yeah, it's so beautiful. I've had a relationship with them since 2006. Since I did Shakespeare in the Park, Mother Courage, they've invited me to audition in the past. I've, I've had to turn it down for really reasons of that. Sometimes we have to turn down theaters. Actors is I I couldn't afford if I got hired. Although it is a good gig to maybe make ends meet, but I, I I also think I just wasn't ready to to make that leap. And I knew this year they invited me again. I'm like I gotta do this. And what it is, is they take it to, they go to prisons, hospitals, public parks, schools, uh, rehabilitation centers, public institutions, and they perform Shakespeare for free for these places. It's it's a theatrical experience that the public offers for free to communities that generally don't have access to go see theater, you know, and spend $20, $30. So it's a really amazing thing they do. And then what they do when they're done with the tour and the tour is the tour schedule. It's like the craziest theater tour schedule I've ever seen. They give it to you and you're like, you know, one day you're going to the top of Queens. Another day you're going deep in Brooklyn. Another day you're going to a part of Jersey and then there's a break here. And then there's two different shows in one day and it's all over the place. It's not like any regular touring theater schedule. But after it's done with the five or six weeks where they do this for the public, they do a run. At the public, at one of the main theaters at the public, you know, in downtown. And and that's a three-week run. And those tickets are also free, I believe, but it's sort of first come, first serve.
0: Wow, and, um, wow. Cool.
1: Yeah, and it's that's the three-week run at the theater.
0: That's beautiful, though. So you get to have this extraordinary experience of going around and, and putting up this play in kind of nomad style, like ancient style of theater, right? This is the stage you're using in this place. It's just another room. This is a place you probably get to re-choreograph the whole thing every time. Totally. Depending on what doors are there and what doors aren't there. And then you get a traditional run for a few weeks just to kind of give you that feeling and give everybody else the feeling of sitting in that real, that in a professional space.
1: Absolutely. A- everything you just said and the part about the nomad style, it's like, you are also doing this amazing service for yeah. the community of New York, New Jersey, Queens. You know, you're, you, you get to be part of this. It was there was multiple benefits to being part of this because it's something I continue to seek in my life. It was amazing to like, oh wow, I just got this really—it's actually a sweet contract. For it. it's, a, it's a AEA Off Broadway contract. There was some bonuses in it, and on top of that, you're fulfilling the nurturing side if you if you have it, which I do. What can I bring to my community in a way that is just serving something that I love, which is Shakespeare. I will always love Shakespeare. So this contract was a
0: little better than that one you had to turn down years ago?
1: The public always has really great contracts for their—that's been my experience. Even for their non-equity people, I think they do the best. I, I can definitely say they do the best to get their actors, their crew members, their production team as much as they can. Given the reality of what it is to do theater, obviously, because they're not doing big Broadway hits.
0: Right. And this one, they're not even making any money on.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they're trying, that's what Shakespeare in the Park is it's free theater for the masses. Granted, they have wonderful donors. They admit that. They talk about that. But no, this was a really good contract. I remember, you know, in, in previous sort of, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I remember the contracts were like they were good, but you know, we always do what we can as as theater actors or actors in general to like, where do you? I think that's
0: one of those things about the theater that it's still shocking to me and I'm in the business, but I don't think people really understand that so many of the theater actors that they see in New York that are doing these wonderful plays. I mean, that's a great gig. The gig you got is a great gig. You're like, you're in with an amazing production house. It can lead to other productions, other jobs. It's Wonderful exposure. It's an enormous amount of fun. It's going to go towards your union credits and stuff like that. And people don't understand. Like, it's a shoestring living.
1: Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself.
0: And it's just like, people forget that most actors are just, they're struggling, often have to work other jobs to do something that they love.
1: It's crazy. And I think you'll relate to this. So when I was doing Shakespeare in the Park for the public, I was acting with actors who you would know from TV and film. You know, very established actors who I think the normal person or the average person, not to condescend, who's not in theater, would think, Oh, they're they're doing great. But like friends of mine who I was acting with who like were had been series regulars on TV, had done stuff, were struggling to get by that summer. And they were telling me what they were making and they were like, This is hard. It's just a crazy, it's a beautiful, crazy, magical, strange business being an artist and actor.
0: Yeah, man. Anyway, we could talk for a long time about that. We cannot talk any more about it because we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> Paco, what did you have for breakfast this morning?
1: I had, oh God, I, you know, it's funny, I think I forgot you asked me a question. <laughs> I love it I when the, my, people forget. I, it wasn't my son's <laughs> leftover. I had leftovers left from uh, two days ago. So one of the things I've fallen in love with in quarantine, I fall in love with a lot of things, is YouTube cooks. So I, I love cooking food at home. And I love looking at recipes, but I've really fallen in love with uh, watching YouTube cook. And there's this guy, Sam the Cooking Guy, and he has a great cooking channel on YouTube. And the way he makes his black beans, I love. So I basically had uh, breakfast tacos with Sam the Cooking Guy's black beans. Very simple. It's cumin, garlic powder, paprika, salt in a pan mashed up. And then scrambled egg with peppers, onions, oil, salt, and then corn tortillas, two of them. So I had those. I had breakfast tacos for breakfast and the remainder of my homemade cold brew iced coffee. I oh, that's you know right. You are such coffee, a cold brew. That's right.
0: Yeah, and you I are a real, coffee. I think you're one of the, the highest level coffee purists I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you.
1: It's <laughs> funny. I think I still have this thought that everybody thinks I'm this horrible coffee stuff. My thing is the coffee needs to be roasted in the last two weeks. So I always look on the roast on dates. It just needs to be somebody that's established, some town, there's so many places, but yes, but I would say I'm a coffee stop and I believe you're allowed to be a stop about at least two or three things in life. That's just my personal belief.
0: That's good. So that means that means you got to take about six off your list. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. No way, man, I think that's great. Uh, I, uh, I <laughs> But it's true, I love that breakfast. It sounds delicious. Paco, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life?
1: From the earliest of ages have this memory. I'll, I'll tell you, Nick. I was raised Catholic. I was a practicing Catholic. And just to say, just because I'm not today in my life, and I believe nobody in my immediate family is anymore, but we were. I went to a Catholic school from kinder to eighth grade in El Central, California, the little small desert town I grew up in, literally on the border of Southern California, St. Mary's. And I was an altar server uh, at St. Mary's Catholic School from third to eighth grade. I got confirmed there. I had my first communion there. I got baptized. I didn't get baptized there. I got baptized, I believe, in Puerto Rico, where I was born. And I have this vision of laying on my brother's bed. We have a bunk bed in our room. I have my mom and dad had four kids my older brother, my older sister, me, and my younger sister. And laying on my older brother's bed and having, I don't know if existential crisis is fair to say, but it was the fear. Finally starting to understand and interpret and really the, the, the thought and understanding materialize of eternal damnation or eternal salvation, which is one of the things that was being taught at my Catholic school. And this just horrible fear of what if I go to hell and suffer forever? And then having to talk with my mom and telling, being able to tell her I'm afraid, I'm worried, what if this? What if that? And her oh, no. saying to me really lovingly, I'll never forget, she's like, hey, I just want you to know, we do go to Catholic school every Sunday. We we really want this for you. You know, I believe in our church, but I don't believe that our church has all the answers. And I actually don't believe that if we do good, at, this is how I remember that if we do good in this planet, that is actually a thing that we're going to suffer forever if somebody has chosen that we go to hell. She was really like, she actually was able to really, softened that fear that, that the Catholic Church had, I don't want to say they're 100% responsible for, but it was something that was being taught. It was something that I had for an ex- a, a big portion of my childhood. Sure. And how old do you had think all. you were? I, at the time when I had that conversation with my mom, I, I think I was like seven, eight, nine. Yeah, right,
0: right. right.
1: So I'm somewhere around there, probably eight or nine. So
0: right. did she, is that a thought then that still lingered in your mind for a while or did you feel oh, yeah. like she was able to pacify that to a point?
1: No, I think she was able to I, I what I felt as I felt with many areas of my life, my parents, is they kept the hoop open enough for me to know that I could really choose to believe whatever I wanted and really not just believe it, but know it to be my truth. If that was the experience I was having. Happy, happy. They didn't say it like that. But you know, like for example, being an actor, they always were that I never they never said and expressed any concern. They said, We just want you to be happy. So, whatever you want to do, you do that. And I think with my spiritual and religious upbringing, I think it was similar like, if you don't believe that, it's okay. Like, we're not going to tell you, Oh, you need to go back to Catholic school and learn that better and believe it. If you're not believing that, if you have an issue with it, that, it's okay. You know, just to say, nobody, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive. Nobody, my mom, my dad, my siblings, we don't attend Catholic church anymore for a while. We did when my grandmother was alive, who you've met a few times. I don't know if you remember her at Marquette yeah. University. She was a big, 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 still is a big part of my spiritual life, as I now call it. Um, some people might prefer it as religious life. But uh, even though we don't, I do think, I'll speak for myself, so many of these things that I learned as a raised Catholic, I, I, I love the Catholic church so many areas. And then I have my own issues with areas. And you know what I was talking to? Two weeks ago from Marquette University, and he was saying, I just want you to know and be clear that even though you're not a practicing Catholic, I believe that the stuff you're doing in this world is enough. So I don't subscribe to belief that because you're not going to church as a Catholic, and I believe that that's possible for anybody. It was nice to hear an ordained priest in the Catholic Church, and there's many who, who believe
0: that. Yeah, that yeah, that's lovely. How long does this period of your life continue? I mean, maybe this is actually a time since you're young and you would, I mean, you were in, a, in an area where you, which would have been heavily Spanish speaking and, and bilingual, right?
1: Yeah. So El Centro, it, absolutely. It was a predominantly Hispanic, Latino, whatever you want to call it, town. Uh, predominantly, like 90%. And then, you know, 10, 15% American kids. And yes, we were, we were like, this is a great description of us. We were sort of odd birds. The Lozanos, because we were like middle upper class. I hate using those terms. Yeah, us you know, we, really we do real. our we
0: best were. to understand. But so you're like a little bit above. Yeah, you're doing well.
1: Yeah, but my dad's doing well. He's a geological engineer. He's got his degree from Mexico City. You know, he's learned English and he's doing business with both American clients and Mexican clients. And he built this business. He had a really good business, and then his business didn't do well when I was in high school, and then he went bankrupt. And then my mom had to go back to school, which was really amazing. It was really humbling for all of us. And then she became a federal court interpreter and became the the primary breadwinner for our family. Wow. But, and I guess so in this journey, if you're asking about like my religious journey, and then also as a, a Mexican-Cuban kid, you know, Spanish is my first language. But as you can hear in my accent, I don't think I have an accent. No. I learned English from a very young age. And I moved to... El Centro, California, just before turning three. It's one of my earliest memories. I have a couple of memories from Mexico at two years old. And the school that I was in, in Mexico, in Mexico City, at two and a half years old, in a school where my older sister and older brother were at, at, they were teaching me English there. Hmm. So I'm learning English, and then we moved to Southern California. And then I speak English like pretty quickly up until at three years old. I'm pretty bilingual because kids are sponges. It's really beautiful to watch my son, who's 21 months old. I think you know this. I only speak Spanish to him.
0: Right. No, it's a beautiful thing. American. I wish I had that uh skill. Yeah. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing what you what your you and your wife are able to do. I think it's beautiful. Yeah.
1: And then so I guess I say awkward because I speak English perfectly. I I don't have the traditional indigenous appearance of, of I, you know, we're not, I'm not indigenous Mexican. My parents, parents are all, for the most part of their grandparents all originated from Europe, from Spain. So, and that's the thing that, you know, we, we really talk about in our culture today. I have my own issues about it is how do we pass? I hate that term, but we talk about it. how do we pass?
0: That means what do we, what do people perceive us as?
1: Way? Yes. What do people perceive us as? It's interesting. I had more of a, a, a darker tone. My brother still has a little bit darker, I'm sometimes jealous because he has a little bit more of a of a, a darker Mexican complexion. I don't look white, but people, if we ever talk about as I'm perceived, and people want to know where I'm from, there's usually an ambiguity there, a, a vagueness of like, are you European, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, oh Latino? I would have thought that Italian. I think I can pass as a lot of that. And so on this is I didn't know any of this as a kid. I was I was born in Puerto Rico. I speak Spanish and English. My mom is Cuban, my dad is and that's what I know. And we're growing up in this Spanish town where I speak a lot of English and I speak a lot of Spanish. And there's mostly Hispanic people there.
0: What you're saying is you didn't feel like an outsider where you were. You felt, you felt comfortable in your own skin and your family's skin. You know, you were all doing well economically for the most part outside of a tough couple of years, it sounds like. But you don't have a story of feeling like an outsider.
1: No, it's interesting you ask that. I do have a story of feeling like an outsider, but I don't think that has anything to do with my surroundings or my culture my feeling like an outsider was my own thing of uh, my Paco journey of like, I had a big head as a kid and I got teased for that. Mm-hmm. And when I see now my son's big head, I just think it's so beautiful. Right. Mm-hmm. But I got teased for that as a kid. And then I was a bit of an oddball, but now if I see oddball kids, I'm like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. They're so unique. But I got, you know, kids get teased and, and I didn't get teased harshly. I'm not saying like I got, beat up or anything like that but I got teased for having a big head my name Paco Paco Taco that was the thing my my cousins and siblings would say Paco Taco, Puma tobacco and I was so like my family is a very sensitive family and I can say with the that I'm the most sensitive oh, I know in that a family <laughs> of, yeah I'm a family of very sensitive people my I remember when I met my graduate acting school teacher in person for the first time. I had, I had auditioned and I had a call back for him twice, gene Wise. And when I sat down with him and, and, and we had like a heart to heart, right, when I was accepted to grad school and my sister brought me in Florida and Sarasota, he said to me, you and your family, you are primary colors. And that's always resonated with me. It's like, hmm. there is no sort of in between. When you're happy, you're happy. When you're sad, you're sad. When you're Upset, you're upset when you're, you know, joyous, when you're afraid, you're afraid. And that, that that's a good descriptor, I think, to some extent of our family. It's it's primary colors in a really beautiful way. There's fluidity between them. But yeah, but no, I have felt sort of not a part of, it, that, not in terms of my culture. And that's been an interesting thing, not to get off topic here, owning my culture a lot more now in my adult life for many important reasons.
0: Yeah, that is a beautiful place for us to stop. For our first break. Love it. We'll jump in there when we return. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Paco. So he left us with a beautiful jumping off point, which is you talking about the journey of owning your own culture. And I wanna know about what that story is. I wonder too, if it can be told in parallel with, where do you leave off then maybe it's your teen and college years through that next stage of your Catholic religiosity or your Catholic spirituality, the stage that maybe you're questioning or you're fighting to still be devout. And then, you know, before you move into the next phase of your life.
1: Yeah. I, you know, at this, so I'll just say that that sort of same thing of the the punishing God, as I've said before, that I carried and the, fear of eternal life or or maybe the hope for eternal salvation continued with me through high school through college but but I found something in high school that was a solution that helped alleviate some of these deep fears, which is I found uh, drinking and I and I found uh, drugs in the sense of pot, you know marijuana I never got into hard drugs really that I became a pretty heavy pot user in college and I loved to drink and I started drinking socially in high school. And it is important to mention that for me because, you know, I've, I, I, I'm a, as you know, I'm a, a sober alcoholic in recovery. I've been, I haven't had a drink or drug, uh, for 12 and a half years now almost. Congratulations. And one thing, thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you, Nick. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. No. Uh, one thing that is that I've only recognized in sobriety is that using alcohol for me and using drugs for me was in itself for a long time a spiritual experience, if that makes sense. It yes. was something that made me feel like, oh, I don't have to worry about the afterlife. Oh, I don't have to worry about this punishing God. And then not just with that stuff, but with everyday fears and anxiety and and maybe feeling alone, feeling homesick, feeling, you know, because I was, my brother and sister both went to Berkeley. I was sort of a black sheep of the family in the sense that I had an incredible like SAT math score in high school, not a great uh, verbal score. And then I had such proficiency at at math and then acting and artistic stuff. And I went to Marquette University. I don't know if you knew this about me. I think I told you some I only got in because I had an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So I was, again, another sort of theme in my life, which I've now come to love, is this odd-birdness quality about me continues. I end up at Marquette University, a Jesuit Catholic institution, which my parents were like, this is great. Even though I you know, I, I, I kind of stopped practicing going to church as soon as I got to college, um, I would go here and there. But, and even at the end of high school, we weren't going maybe as much when my brother and sister were in college. But I ended up at Marquette University on an Air Force ROTC scholarship wanting to do theater and getting involved in the theater department, but they don't have the space. You know, the closest they can get me to that is broadcast journalism because they sort of have allotments on the way they can get their scholarships out throughout the country. And there was no room for having an actor in the Air Force ROTC. You know. So I – long story short, in the first year of Air Force ROTC, I drop out at the end of the year. That's just not for me. I pick up a bunch of student loans. I stay at Marquette because i have fallen in love with the theater department at that point. That was pre, just before Phyllis Ravel joined. This
0: was my first right. year. Right. This is an interesting um, thing, at least in our in our very specific local yeah. history. You were there a couple of years before Phyllis arrived. And um, yeah, Phyllis exactly. is this kind of transformative figure for, for all of us that were there uh, during Absolutely. those years.
1: Yeah. So I'm all in with my theater education at Marquette not having scholarships, not having anything really. Like my parents didn't have the ability at this point to support all their children with college and fund them. And that's fine. Some parents do and some parents don't. But I wanted to stay there. And I don't think I could comprehend how expensive an education it was to self-fund yourself with loans for that. And, And I'm glad I didn't. I'm actually glad because that's where I knew I needed to arrive. But at this point, like partying has taken like a central sort of seat in my life. It's not like I I was never the type of alcoholic who drank around the clock, but I drank and used pot to feel connected. I drank and used pot to it, I had an inability to handle life without alcohol and pot. And if I didn't have alcohol or pot, the things that I would turn to weren't beneficial for me, you know, whether it was, you know, isolating or, or or, you know, getting in fights with people or, you know, in the later years of my life, moving to New York, training like a madman for a marathon and losing all this weight, you know, but ultimately I could, I knew that I could always rely on partying to feel connected. And that was linked to my spirituality. It really, I didn't know this until maybe these last four or five years of my life because drugs and alcohol were a spiritual experience. But I remember very clearly, this is important to say that you know, I'm in New York. It's 2000 now. I'm flashing forward a lot. Sure. I graduated from Marquette. I've graduated with my degree from the conservatory. I have my I'm, I'm in New York, and I'm very lost. Like, I'm close to, like, my bottom with alcoholism. I'm not there yet, but it's 2005, 2006, because I got sober in 2008. But it's 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 getting it's starting to get dark. It's also starting to get really exciting, because I'm doing the show with Meryl Streep. And I'm dating this woman, Katie, you know, I thought she was the one. And, and we had this first great relationship that was then tumultuous. A lot of it had to do with me and my inability to, to really be present. But I, I, I have specific memories from that time in my life. Going to bed, even on nights when I was drinking and feeling so lost and so far away from God, like feeling like, oh, my God, whatever I was raised with as a Catholic child, I am so far from that. And I don't even mean that like I'm not honoring the Catholic upbringing. I just feel so far away from God. That was the best way I could describe it. And I felt that way for a long time. And it was very scary. And at that point, I think it's fair to say that I, I was turning to, you know, I picked up this prayer and I'm not slamming this specific prayer. I think for some people it's useful. For me, it wasn't useful. And I had to, I, I pray in my life today. I have specific prayers I say, and I have a meditation practice that I've cultivated for for many years now. But there was a prayer I was saying before I got sober that I only started saying. I didn't learn this as a kid. I didn't teach this in my Catholic school, and I don't even know if it's a Catholic school prayer. You, you'll probably recognize it. Is And now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Mm-hmm. And I was saying that prayer every night before bed because I was so afraid of the life that I was living that if I died in my sleep or whatever, that I was going to hell. And I was like, let me just say this prayer so that if something happens, hopefully whatever is out there will offer me like just a small chance. Please just give me a chance. And it it makes me sad to think about that version of Paco. As like a 43 year old man, it makes me sad that I went through that. But at the same time, I, I, I hope this makes sense. I'm very grateful that I went through that phase in my life. I am. I think it set me up for a willingness later on in sobriety, not knowing that I would ever get sober. I had some idea that I would want to put down drugs and alcohol at some point, but I didn't even realize I was an alcoholic. And I couldn't admit that I was actually powerless over it as a whole. Um, But I do think going through that was necessary for me to maybe be where I'm at
0: today. Oh man, well, it's impossible to imagine it not being so, right? You know, my mother loves to say this. Lots of people in my life love to say this that everything happens for a reason, right? I mean, we all, like so many people, say that in life. And
1: I would love to respond to that if you're okay.
0: Oh, yeah, go ahead. With go, that. please.
1: I, I believe there's so much truth for that for me, Nick. And I think I'm, I imagine you're on the same thing. That's not something like I would say. To today, even maybe five years ago, ten years ago, that's not something I would just say to anybody going through a horrible thing. But I'll say from my personal experience that the most horrible things that have happened in my life, what I have been unable to see at the time, that God actually had my back during those times, whether I I was able to see it or not. I heard a woman say this. My so Macon's mom was dying.
0: Macon is your wife.
1: Megan is my wife, and her mom was, we, we found out that her mom's cancer had returned in the summer of 2017, I'm trying to track, it 16 or 17, summer of 2017, she had been in remission from breast cancer for nine years, it came back with a vengeance, and she passed away, and then when we were there for her funeral, it was really beautiful, it was really hard, me and Megan had to just duck out for like an hour at one point and go do this thing, And there was this woman who was sharing, and I'll never forget what she said. It was the simplest thing I'd heard. I'd never heard it said like this. God never left me. I left God. And I had in that moment, she said that, and this warmth sort of surfaced over my heart, which sometimes happens in life. And then like it just sort of overtook my body. And I looked around the room that I was like, a minute before that judging because there was this person who was like sleeping in the corner. There was a person who was walking in and out, having a cup of coffee.
0: You know, in my
1: head, I'm like, people, why aren't you present? We're here. This person is doing a service for us. There's an alcoholic. She's trying to help us stay sober for another day. And, and she says that thing. She's like, God never left me. I left God. And this warmth overtakes my heart. Suddenly I look at the room. Nothing has changed in the room. Everybody's doing the same thing, but I have this totally different perspective on it. I feel this warmth and compassion for the person sleeping in the corner of the room. I have this love for the person who's walking in and out, who maybe checked out. I don't feel the need to control them. And then I'm like looking at my wife, and I'm like, Paco, your wife's mom just died. You can just be here for her. And I, it's not that I wasn't being there for her, but I had this thought: just be here for her. That's all you have to do. You just have to show up as her husband. Okay. Get emotional because it was like I believe that. That for me, everything has happened for a reason. It's one of those things where like, I sometimes have an inability to see it as it's happening. Of course, when, it, when horrible things are happening. But when I look back, it's like, oh, wow, I was being really taken care of even though I was experiencing loss. Or even if I did this horrible thing or somebody else did a bad thing to me. Or Who was it? that Was it Steve Jobs who said, I can always look back at my life and see how I've been taken care of. But I can't ever look forward and have faith that I will be taken care of. But if I look backwards mm. in the hardest moments.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a great phrase. Yeah. One thing that really become has become aware to me is that you get to this stage of life and you're just so busy living it, especially when you're young and and if you're young and ambitious, as you're we're trying to, you know, make our way as actors and fight in this really intense, these intense pressure cookers of this business, you know, all of the kind of yeah. freelance intensity of this. And you know, it's the classic thing, right? The life is what happens to you when you're doing other things or whatever the thing is, you know what I mean? Whatever that phrase is. And now you're, I'm 40, you're 43 and we're going, oh, I get it. All those things that I was trying to achieve or overcome, that was my life. Now I understand though my life has chapters. I didn't realize I was living a chapter at that time, but you needed these chapters. Like we all need these chapters, and whatever our experiences, our experiences make us who we are. I've always had a hard time saying everything happens for a reason because one of the problems with that is, is that it, it can kind of put a, a saccharine twist on horrifying events, right? I haven't had oh horrifying God, events, but I know people who have had horrifying events in their lives. And absolutely. you would not want to tell that person everything happens for a reason, right? Like, I'm sure they've overcome those challenges. I'm sure they've overcome those horrifying events to live their life to the fullest. And they've used those events as experiences to drive them forward. But this is one of the, um, the cold hearted things about religion. Sometimes religion likes to say, well, God will take care of you and God is in control of everything. And so, you know, but that's a, that's cold hearted because then if, then God is cold, right? Because a lot of horrible things happen, but nonetheless, we have to accept what happens in our lives. And so this is like that paradox and you're speaking about it in a way that I totally understand, which is that of course, you have to look at this as something that made you better. Because here's the thing, you'd look back at that person and you weren't great. You weren't feeling great, you know? You weren't feeling great about who you are. I mean, the, the image of you, it, it's a really resonant image, going to bed, feeling like I'm lost. I'm gonna say a, a prayer for myself as it a, 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 resonates, you know? You can feel yeah. it's palpable that you were confused. And, and you are not in that way anymore, you know? Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to be able to say you, you know what that feeling is. And then as an actor, of course, you get to translate that lived experience, that lived emotional experience and bring that to others through your art. You know, that's gorgeous.
1: Thanks, man. I mean, I love what you just said. I don't know why you made me think about this. Maybe you've heard this term is the religion is for people trying to avoid going to hell. And spirituality is for people who've been there. Oh, and it's something I very much, I, I don't know if I'm misquoting that, but I, I very much relate to because I feel like I have already lived my own personal hell for multiple years on this planet. And I just have to say, it's really important to say that I'm not immune from going back there. My daily practice of the things that I do in my life is so that one day at a time, hopefully I can, you know, continue on this journey and not. Go back to that place because I know that not only would I lose everything that I hold dear—my wife, my son, myself—it would just make me so sad. But I'm also so grateful for being there. And I completely agree with you. It's not anything I would ever tell anybody. I believe there's all sorts of privilege in in, in the world. I know that you understand white privilege. I, I mean,
0: sure, it's definitely something I'm trying to engage with more—is the conversation the around all of that? So yeah, my
1: my wife is. It's beautiful to watch. You know, white people around me, I just have to say for myself, I have benefited from white privilege. That's been something coming to terms in the last two years because of my appearance and because of the way I sound. And my son, who is half Hispanic, he's blonde. He will benefit from how he appears. But But the thing about privilege that I wanted to mention is that there's other sorts of privilege. There's, you know, the privilege of having the experiences I've had and being able to say what I'm able to say. How could I expect somebody who's gone through something far more traumatic than me to be able to just, you know what I mean? But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't discount myself. I can absolutely speak up and say, I realized that even though this horrible thing happened and I wouldn't want it to happen to anybody else, I was learning something. And God was teaching me something and God was with me. That is okay for me say. It. And that doesn't mean I have to project that or expect that of somebody else. You're I
0: else. think that that's exactly right, man. It's one of the, it's one of the core elements of why I love this show is that it's a complicated matter, right? You know, there's a universality to the idea of, of God or, you know, the universe, this, the, the infinite, the mystery, but we can only understand it in our own personal lens. And so, and it is not cool to put your own personal lens on somebody else. And yet at the same time, you're trying to, Connect about something that's universal, you know. So there's a paradox as yeah. we try to talk about it, and that's why, that's why I find it endlessly fascinating uh, for us to try to navigate what, how the hell we, how the hell we can bridge the thing that we agree is universal, but we might view personally through different lenses. And so I, yeah. I, you're you're speaking in a way that's sensitive and broad-minded, and. You sound good as you're talking. (laughs) But look, man, let's go to the break. This is our second break, okay? And we'll come back and we'll have a big chunk to finish it up. We'll be back in a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners. And it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with our final segment. Paco, you told a really compelling story about some of the darkest moments in your life. Now tell me about the experience of actually getting sober?
1: Yeah, so it's 2006, and we were talking about, you know, I'm in New York. Uh, Life is really good. Like, life on the outside is really good. I'm doing this show. I'm dating this woman who I'm in love with and who loves me, and I'm dying inside. I don't know how else to say that. I, I mean, it might sound dramatic. It used to feel dramatic to say, but it's the truth. Not literally or physically, spiritually and emotionally. I'm drinking a lot. Uh, I had a a gambling addiction to poker where I would go to poker clubs, you know, in a drunken haze, underground poker clubs and spend money that I shouldn't have been spending, even though I was good at poker. I'm in this relationship where I'm far, far from my best self with this woman who just wants to experience love with me in a partnership. And it was good, but then it wasn't. And so after I, I, I'm done doing that show, Mother Courage, I, I stop acting. I, I, that's the last thing I do. In summer of 2007, Katie breaks up with me. Best thing that could have happened to me. And that was horrible. I didn't want it to happen. And then I lose, uh, uh, I, I was waiting tables at a really great, fun restaurant. I don't know if you ever went there when I was there. Andy visited me a couple of times, Bomb 45. Um, in Times Square, but it wasn't like it was an authentic Italian, awesome restaurant, sort of in the Times Square district. And they were always very flexible with my schedule with auditions and, and shows. And I made really good money, and I could come and go as I please, sort of like an actor's dream side gig, you know. I lose that job, alcohol related. Get caught drinking after work with patrons when I'm supposed to be more responsible than that, and with the manager that just got hired. Uh, Joe lets me go never forget the conversation in the office i'm crying and he said listen i know you haven't acted for over a year and i know that that's one thing that makes you happen than anything i've been concerned about that and i don't know what's going on with your drinking but i gotta tell you i never thought i would ever have to fire you i'll never forget he said this because i was a very good salesperson for him and he said someday you're gonna be so thankful to me that i did this but you can't work here anymore and i'm letting you go and that was December of 2007. It was the day before my mom's birthday. I remember that. I remember like, her birthday's the next day. I didn't want to tell her. And then I could no longer, I didn't have money to go home. I could have like borrowed money from my family, but I didn't want to. I didn't have money to go home for the holidays. Not like, I could have saved so much money from that gig and, and whatever. But my money was just like getting poured into like bars and going out and whatever. It was the life that I lived for so long. and And poker clubs and all that. That's when my life like starts getting really dark. Don't go for the ho- home for the holidays. I get this other job at Columbus Circle, waiting tables. Hate it. I have to work breakfast. Different. It's not really for me. I'm good at it, making good money, but I hate it. I literally could not show up to work without getting stoned, without getting high. Wow. You know, that was at that point my pot news had. I had gone through this thing where I, I didn't smoke for a year. I smoked for a year. I didn't smoke for a year. I didn't smoke for a year, and I was back on it.
0: I can't believe you could serve people stoned. I I can't believe you could just do that. A lot of
1: people do it. Yeah. And then there's people who use pot, not like, you know, and can't. They're just, you're right. Like some people just, how can you do that? Like you, like I can't. And they smoke pot and I have nothing against pot. I think it should be legalized, but you know, I'm an alcoholic. For me, it was a thing that triggered the thing. So I lasted that job for three months, get fired. And then my great idea, really the next brilliant idea is I'm going to go scalp tickets for sporting and concert events before the show for an hour to two hours. And I would sometimes make really good money. Like I would buy tickets off people who were trying to unload their tickets just for face value or under. And I would turn and find somebody else to resell them for an extra 20, 40 bucks and do that for an hour hour and a half. Crazy. All this whole time, what is going on? What are you doing with your life? What is happening? Like, who are you? Who have you become? The The most important part of this story is that My grandmother passes away. You met her in Marquette Mm -hmm. more than a few times. She went over there. She was 92 years old when she passed in 2008. Mm. She always said the same thing to me. You just worry about your acting career. You focus on that. That's who you're meant to be in this life. You're an artist. Love that. Do that. Focus. Save your money. It should be noted that she was a practicing Catholic up until she died. She carried a prayer book around her all the time. She said these things to me when I would get in fights with my dad as a kid. She would say these amazing things please try and understand where he's coming from he's got a lot of pressure on him she would always try and help me see take the higher road in my journey so she passes in January 2008 she was like my second mom it's horrible it is like a horrible loss um I had gotten to see her the year before I didn't get to be with her at the end she had gotten sick and she was maybe going and I'll never forget my mom calling to tell me she passed I get on a plane to Puerto Rico to go to the funeral. My little sister Bebe asks me, says, "Paco, can you do me a favor?" And I go, "What is it?" She's like, "Can you please not drink before you come out here?" And I say, "Absolutely." And I meant it. And I meant it, Nick. I said, "I'm, I'm gonna stay sober for this trip." The moment, what happens? The moment I'm at JFK, I decide, "Let me just go have a glass of wine," because I couldn't handle the terror of that. My grandma. I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I had no tools, and I had this inability to not. And I wasn't drunk throughout the funeral, but I was always like, oh, there's a glass of champagne. I just want to have a sip. It was like the obsession was there. I was able to mostly stay sober, but it was a horrible struggle. Still unaware I was an alcoholic on what would have been my grandmother's 93rd birthday. which is May 1st, 2008. I'm back in New York, and my family says, hey, St. Patrick's Cathedral was her favorite cathedral in the world. Can you please go and visit it for us? And I say, absolutely. At this point, I'm smoking a lot of pot and I'm buying quarter pounds of pot and selling them and distributing them to like coworkers. And at this point, I'm in at another restaurant, played out fired from the last one, taking advantage of this restaurant in a different way, whatever. So I tell my family, of course, I take the day off from work. I dress up. I go to Bryant Park and I have like my one hitter box with me and I'm low and I'm running out of pot. And it was like 30, 11 a.m. It was a beautiful day. I'm on the grass. And every intention, I'm going to go walk to St. Patrick's Cathedral to honor my grandmother. It was her favorite place in the world. My family wanted me to go there. I told them. And something in me was like, wait, I got to get more pot. I call my dealer at the time, this guy in New Jersey. And I'm like, let me go on the New Jersey Transit. Back then, and I think still, I don't know, because I haven't drank in 12 years, you could drink on the New Jersey Transit. So I got like a, a, a tall boy, and I, I got on the New Jersey Transit, and I made a decision. I'm going to go to the... St. Patrick's Cathedral when I come back. So I'm starting to get drunk. I go to my friend's place. I buy the quarter pound. We're partying. We're smoking. And I'm like, it's like 3, 4 p.m. I'm like, oh, shit. I got to get back and go to the cathedral. I know I got to do this thing. And it's like in the back of my head at this point. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I walk outside. It's a beautiful day. And I walk out onto the grass. And I I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. And I'll share it with you now. Yeah, no. Something happens to me. Something happens to my my body, like physically. Physically. Not just like emotionally, some physical sort of like sweep of energy goes through my body. And I'm like, whoa, what the fuck just happened? And then I'm I'm wearing my grandmother's cufflinks that were given to me that were her husband's who I never met, my grandfather, who I never met, were given to me at her funeral by her son, my mom's brother, Rafa. And he was like, these are for you. I'm wearing them. And I look down and one of them is broken. It's got like the metal is cracked. I don't know how it happened. And there's a rift. And all of a sudden, I start feeling and hearing my grandmother vibrate and resonate through my body. And basically, she's just communicating to me in Spanish over and over and over again. Sorry, I get emotional when I say this. Um, this is not who you are. This is not who you're meant to be. This wow. is not who you are. This is not who you're meant to be. She's just saying that to me, lovingly, over and over and over again. And I'm, like, freaking out. I'm like, grandmother, are you talking to me? What's happening? And she's just, it's just her voice over and over in me. This is not who you are. This is not who you're meant to be. Uh, I am able to get back into New York City. I'm like dressed up, but I'm like drunk and dirty. Like my shirt's untucked, even though I have this nice shirt with cufflinks and whatever. And sure enough, it's like 6.30 or whatever. The sun's going down. And it's starting to go down 7, maybe even. St. Patrick's Cathedral is closed. It was a Sunday. It's closed. Wow. I'm banging on the fucking doors, Nick.
0: Christ. Wow, dude, like, you're just like you've got your you've got your grandmother's spirit in you, and you're like, I'm late. I can't. And I, wow. I
1: couldn't. It was the worst feeling. I'll tell you. I hope I never feel that way again. I've felt horrible things in my life, but the feeling of like I've not only let my grandmother down, who passed on her 93rd birthday, what would have been her 93rd birthday, when my family, I've let my family down, and I've let myself down because I chose to get high and drink was. Horrible. I went home, depressed, drunk or or drunk over at that point. I don't know even if I had it in me to drink anymore. I went home, passed out, slept. The next five weeks are like this horrible slog, four to five weeks. And then I'm walking across Union Square and I run into my friend, Lauren, who at the time is sober, 14 months. And run into her in Union Square. I'm going to train at this restaurant. And she's like, hey, how are you doing? And she could see the sadness. She could see I'm not well. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm like, hey, Lauren, can I ask you something? She's like, yeah. I'm like, are you still sober? And are you still doing the sober thing? She's like, I am. And I'm like, how's it going? She's like, my life is so different, Paco. And I'll never forget she asked me, are you okay? And I I was able to eke out some version of, I'm not sure. I wasn't able to be fully honest. Like there was not full honesty. But she said, can you do me a favor and take my number and call me? I think I can help you if you want. And I said, I have your number. I will call you. A lie from like I don't know she I got a text from a random number twenty minutes later saying hey it's Lauren do me a favor and save my number and Lauren did for me what I I've been privileged blessed whatever you want to call it been able to do for a few other people is I believe that for me as an alcoholic in my life at that time in my life in early June of two thousand eight there was a window in my life to, to sort of walk through that I don't know if I would have gotten again. There's a chance I never would have gotten. And she guarded that window with the utmost care and love because she had had the same experience I had. Her own version of it, but she'd been down the same road and she was on the other side. And so she starts helping me. June 12, 2008 is my last night drinking it. June 13, 2008, which is my date of sobriety, is sort of where my life just, it's on this train track. And all of a sudden it just derails partially because i'm willing to say i can't i have to do something different and i'm willing to ask for help help me and i didn't even realize it at the time although i was i was asking god on the morning of june 13 2008 i was in the shower crying saying god i'm an alcoholic help me not knowing what god was to me and then all of a sudden angels start getting put in my life angels people who've gone through what i do lauren was the the most central one so my life just goes on this whole other track. How do I summarize in five, 10 minutes? I can't. I can't do that. I haven't had a drink since June 13, 2008. I don't just believe that I experienced God when that happened in on May 1st. For me, I just know that I did. It's my understanding of what God is in my life. It has grown. It has changed so much. I can no longer, for, for the first year, year and a half of my sobriety, I relied on that experience that happened with my grandmother. At some point, I realized that experience had to be grown in my life. I That wasn't enough. And so it got grown. I don't know if you remember. I was sober, really raw, really new, 25 days living in that crummy apartment on the other side of Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And you came and spent an entire day with me. I told you what was going on. I'm getting emotional because you came. You spent like a whole... Day with me, and I don't even think you were here. You were, you had a lot of friends to see. I think you were working on Heroes at the time, or you'd just done it. And I, I just told you what was going on, and you're like, Do you want to spend some time together? And you just like opened up your heart to me. We would like walk around Williamsburg. I think I showed you my Pearl Jam DVD collection. For sure you did, man. I gave you one of the ones. <laughs> but yeah. it was like, there was kindness from people who had gone through this journey and people outside of my life as I asked for help. And then, you know. The next year I meet Macon, you know, all this. My life starts changing very slowly. In 2010, after a fight I had with Macon, we have been together for like a year. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, she was pushing me to get back into acting. And I was like, I'm not ready. She's like, I think you're just scared. And I remember I was like, got so angry. And if my, my shelter community, not my shelter, her shelter community, which was the theater company that I've been a part of for many years, would have these workshops on Sunday nights for people like me for people who are established, for anybody, people who haven't acted, who maybe want to give. And I, and and we had this fight and I had this realization, oh, maybe she's right. Like that was like, I just had the smallest inkling of maybe I don't know what's best for me that I had to grow that thing to bigger, bigger. Like today in my life, I frequently don't know what's best for me. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that other people run my life. I get to have boundaries and, and have agency, but you know, and I started going to Shelter Sundays. That led to like, oh my God, I forgot how much I loved theater. I missed it so much that it hurt. I went back to my agent. Do you want to take me back? He's like, you need to do this and I'll do that. You know, in 2012, I started auditioning. Then I, you know, I started having more self-esteem and courage and, you know, my life started to get really big and really abundant, really beautiful. I'm back on stage at the Delacorte for Shakespeare in the Park and my life is great. I got, I'm, I'm engaged to Macon. I've met her and I'm starting to understand that there's, some traps in my personal journey. And what I mean by that is all these beautiful things are happening in my life that i never dreamed were even possible, that I could be married to the goal of my dreams, that I could have an acting career that was fulfilling, that I could be happy, that I could stay sober. It's all happening. And in that summer of 2014, something just slightly scary happens, but it's scary enough to remind me what's most important is All my sort of focus and energy and and propulsion, for lack of a better word, for just like a span of two, three weeks, maybe a little longer, is like acting career, acting career, acting career, best wedding, best wedding. And I find myself caught up in this thing like, wait a second, that's not who I – I don't – it's great if I get that, but that's just not my focus. And then I'm reminded by my spiritual guides at the time. I have them now. People who are further along this journey, hey – Remember why you have all these things. It's because you chose to have your own personal spiritual journey. Be really transparent in your life to yourself, to your understanding of God, that you are an alcoholic. And that you're meant to live this other life because your grandmother pretty much, I think it's fair to say, single-handedly pulled you for a moment out of the mire and showed you a better possible life. You had to walk that. I had to do that. So there was a whole learning thing left to do that Mm. summer. I had to get humbled again, as we stay as human beings. And I had to realize I couldn't rely on the outside stuff in my life. It works sometimes, and it's great, and it feels good. I imagine you've had similar experiences. I don't want to speak to you. Sometimes it's really fun to just, like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to enjoy spending money that I have, or I'm just going to enjoy this. note. But it's not the thing that fulfills me. What fulfills me is being at peace in the world. What fulfills me is having meaningful relationships in my life with my wife, with my now son. What fulfills me is helping others when I'm able to, not out of this sense of, oh, so I can get this. And not for me, this is me. I'm not doing good in my spiritual life so that I don't suffer from To sum it all up, one of the most beautiful things is I no longer, for the most part, live with that punishing God. I just couldn't get squared in my life with the idea of doing good things for fear that I would have eternal damnation. I want to do good things because it just brings this source of light and internal joy inside me. It makes me have this ability to be present with my family, with others, and it just makes me more useful.
0: Paco. Yeah. This is a beautiful story and I I love hearing these stories because I love how open you are about how raw and ugly a lot of these things were. You know, you're, you're you make you, it easy, Nick. Make it easy. Well, you yeah. you're you have chosen to have power over these things by admitting them, you know? That's like by naming them, admitting them, offering them out to the world and not trying to hide them, then you have power over them, right? But they're ugly. They're the past. That's ugly. It's not your present and it's not the present you're choosing. When you look at your son, there are so many things I'd love to talk to you about your son and have them recorded, but we don't have time for that. But when you look at your son, do you sometimes look and wonder, this kid's gonna have the same... What if this kid has the same fight? What do I have to do so that he doesn't have that fight?
1: I do. I do. It's something I'm worried about at times. And I also know on my best days, um, not just my better days, on my best days, that the best thing daddy can do for him is continue to grow this life that daddy has found that allowed him to come Fruition, so that if Galileo ends up struggling with alcohol or drugs or things that I struggled with or different things that are horrible, that hopefully I'll be around, not just around, hopefully I'll be around and present to let him know that hey, son, please know that I'm here no matter what struggles you have, you know. Um, but yeah, I do, and I'll just say real quick a friend of mine said this one time, and I'm like, come on, it's corny, but I had this experience too, and it's my own experience that when he was born. The day after he was born, well, hours after he was born, I had this deep, dark, volcanic fear that I would be a horrible death. I realized early on that my son, often, especially when he was born and in those early days, is so much closer to God than I am. And that it's actually real easy for him. And that's the part of the journey that I forget to allow myself to have. I had a friend of mine read my, just read my sort of, energy recently it's like hey remember sometimes this stuff can be really easy too it doesn't have to be a whole lot of work allow yourself to remember that and I guess I see my son a lot of time like oh it doesn't always have to be hard having a relationship with God being present spiritually it can be real easy whatever that means whether it's like let's just go for a walk let's run in the park let's have a laugh let me put him on my shoulders anyway so no
0: that's beautiful That's, that's, that's beautiful. Let's leave it there. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that's a beautiful ending. And I, I, I think that that's especially coming from your story that has a lot of agony, a lot of years of agonizing. I think it's a beautiful thing where it's like, you know what? We don't have to think too hard. We don't have to work too hard. You can just kind of find for you. It's, you can find God. It's easy. It doesn't always have to be so hard. I think that's a nice that's a really nice way of Thanks, Nick. Yeah, of, of yeah, of putting a little putting a little sunshine on the end of this, you know? I mean the, the, look, it's a happy story. You're a ha- I mean like you have a beautiful family now and you've come out of this and you've, you're 12 and a half years sober. So I'm not trying to make it it's just that this is where, you've no, com- this is where you have this is where you've come. This is where you've come. Yeah. And that's a beautiful way to that's a beautiful place to arrive. Thanks, man. Paco, I love you, man.
1: I love you too. How's Harkin? How's How's Andrea? Oh, I gotta how's, say goodbye the to the.
0: I gotta saying? say goodbye to the show before we talk about that. This is oh where the. God, this is where the, the music. Party? This is where the music starts playing. <laughs> we <didn't> say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> I hey, didn't realize you
1: didn't say
0: goodbye. Hang on, hang on. I gotta say goodbye to the show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. Oh, buddy, we could have talked so much longer.
1: I know I get off track easily. I'm I'm really glad you were like, hey, let's get back to good. I'm glad you do that.
0: Oh, okay. it's my job. It's all good. I mean, it's it's <laughs> I I mean, it's a beautiful story, man. I love this. I love this.